and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with more signs of an impending Russian invasion of Ukraine, with Putin signing a decree on Friday to call up reservists as he extends the joint manoeuvres in Belarus and civilians are evacuated from the separatist-held Russian enclave in the Donbass. Joining us for a perspective on how Ukrainians are preparing for expected onslaughts from the north, east and south is Alexander Motel, a professor of political science at Rutgers University who previously served as associate director of the Harriman Institute at Columbia University. A specialist on Ukraine, Russia and the USSR and on nationalism, revolutions, empires and theory, he is the author of a number of books including Dilemmas of Independence, Ukraine After Totalitarianism, Sovietology, Rationality, Nationality, Coming to Grips with Nationalism in the USSR, and The Turn to the Right, The Ideological Origins and Development of Ukrainian Nationalism, 1919-1929. With Biden's National Security Council meeting on Sunday, we'll assess what options the US might employ if Russian tanks cross the borders. Then we'll examine the role of propaganda in preparing the Russian people for a war many do not want with their neighbours, who have close historical, linguistic and religious ties with Russia, with many mixed families on both sides. Joining us is a specialist who studies Russian state-controlled media, Michael Gorham, Professor of Russian Studies at the University of Florida and the author of two award-winning books on language, culture and politics after Newspeak, Language, Culture and Politics in Russia from Gorbachev to Putin and Speaking in Soviet Tongues, Language, Culture and the Politics of Voice in Revolutionary Russia. In addition to two co-edited volumes, Digital Russia, The Language, Culture and Politics of New Media Communications and The Culture and Politics of Verbal Prohibition in Putin's Russia, he has recently published articles devoted to the political and rhetorical impacts of trolls, hackers, blogging bureaucrats, tweeting presidents, dictators on Instagram, Alexei Navalny on YouTube, and the Putin administration's recent efforts to enlist all legislative, technological, and rhetorical means possible to establish a sovereign internet independent of the World Wide Web. Then finally, with millions of Afghans facing starvation as their economy collapses, We'll look into the law firms lining up and jostling to collect from the $3.5 billion of the Afghan people's frozen assets, which President Biden released to the families of the victims of 9-11. Joining us is Lee Fong, an investigative journalist with The Intercept, who was the first to uncover and detail the role of the billionaire Koch brothers in financing the Tea Party movement. He's the author of The Machine, A Field Guide to the Resurgent Right, and we'll discuss his latest article at The Intercept, Lawyers and Lobbyists Fight for Their Slice of the $3.5 billion in Afghan Money Seized by the Biden Administration. And before we go to our first guest, since we are now fully independent, your support for this program is vital to keep us online and on a growing number of radio stations across the country. And while we operate on a low budget, we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org to help ensure that background briefing is sustainable into the future so that we can continue to provide a daily news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests, both at home and abroad. And for those listeners who have issues with PayPal, We now have made it easier to donate simply by credit card. 
So if you are in a position to give support or have been meaning to but have been unable, please go to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Alexander Motel, a professor of political science at Rutgers University, who previously served as associate director of the Harriman Institute at Columbia University, a specialist on Ukraine, Russia, and the USSR, and on nationalism, revolutions, empire, and theory. He's the author of a number of books, including Dilemmas of Independence, Ukraine After Totalitarianism, Sovietology, Rationality, Nationality, Coming to Grips with Nationalism in the USSR, and the Turn to the Right, The Ideological Origins and Development of Ukrainian Nationalism, 1919 to 1929. Welcome to Background Briefing, Alexander Motel. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And on Sunday, as we speak, the White House's uh, National Security Council are meeting. And on Friday, President uh, Putin signed an order to call up reservists and also he has extended the joint maneuvers that the Russian military are having with the Belarus military to the north of Ukraine, and civilians are being evacuated from the separatist-held Russian enclaves in the Donbass. So all these signs must make life in Ukraine a nightmare, and particularly for the Ukrainian military and its political leadership. What are you hearing from uh, Ukraine in terms of preparations for an impending onslaught from the north, the east, and the south. Well, the the Ukrainian military appears to be very confident of being able to withstand the onslaught and to hold its own. Um, and again, I've, that's what the generals and the various officers say. It's also what the reporters in Ukraine hear from the individual soldiers. So the morale seems to be high, and they think that they're well enough equipped to be able to withstand, as I said, the assault. The population in general, um, that varies, obviously. The further west you go, the more likely people are to be less nervous. The further east you go, closer to the, you know, the possible point of aggression, the more likely people are to be nervous. In Kiev itself... Um, Life goes on, you know. I mean, everybody tries to live their life in some fashion or other. Uh, so whether it's schooling, whether it's seminars, uh, whether it's book readings and things of that sort. So life goes on, but people are on edge. One friend of mine said that it's like uh, living on a, uh, on a ticking time bomb. So they're obviously waiting for something to happen, but at the same time, they know that they simply have to weather this out just as they weathered out uh, so many other uh, crises in the past. So, you know, there's there's a resilience to the Ukrainians that isn't quite as evident in the West. Uh, they've been through hard times, and for many of them, this is just a, an iteration of another hard time. But when President Biden said just the other day that he believes that Putin plans to attack Kiev, a city of 2.8 million people. Surely, if that were to happen, there'd be massive civilian casualties, wouldn't there be? Yes, well, you know, there was an estimate done, I think it was by the by one, of, one of the American intelligence agencies, this was like one or two weeks ago, where uh, they estimated that in a full-scale assault, the number of Ukrainians who would die would be about 50,000. 
uh, troops might be about 25,000, Russian troops about 10,000. So, you know, those, the casualties would be real and they would be significant if it were to be a full-scale assault with, you know, street fighting, uh, kind of house-to-house fighting of, 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 of the kind that took place in World War II or in World War I. Um, so Ukrainians, again, in general, in addition to kind of trying to live their lives, I mean, in all the cities and in all the towns, you've got something called territorial defense units that have been set up involving um, civilians who are being trained in all sorts of emergency operations. So um, an acquaintance of mine joined up. She's a woman, and they had to train using guns. They were also training with carrying bodies, living, living bodies up and down stairs for a number of flights. So people are aware of this, and they're trying to do the best they can. Others are, of course, demonstrating. There have been a number of those that have been taken, uh, demonstrations that have taken place in Ukraine. So they're doing what they can do. Uh, but at the end of the day, it all depends on Mr. Putin. I mean, if he launches a full-scale war, then we will have a catastrophe for Ukraine and a slightly smaller catastrophe for Russia, if he decides on alternatively to limit his aggression, say, to the Donbass area in the east, then, of course, both the casualties and the consequences of that kind of aggression will be significantly fewer. Well, military strategists say that if he were to attack in the east, he'd want to take Maripol, but he would also have a pincer movement uh, to encircle the uh, Ukrainian military facing the separatists in the Donbass? Well, he would try, but at the same time, remember, the Ukrainians are fully aware of this. <laughs> you know, they, they read the Western press, and they have their own intelligence sources, so they know what they're, what they're facing. So would they be easily surrounded? And, and, and I think not. Uh, obviously, the Ukrainian military isn't quite on the level of the Russian military, so sooner or later they're likely to be defeated. But that's when Putin's real problems will begin, um, because once you invade the country, once you occupy a portion of it, let's assume it's a significant portion, then you need to establish a permanent occupying force. Um, it's been calculated by experts uh, who do these sorts of things that a significant chunk simply of the uh, East Bank or the eastern part of Ukraine would require about 300,000 permanently stationed soldiers. So if he goes for all of Ukraine, that would be closer to 500,000, perhaps even a million. Uh, but the Russian army consists of a million soldiers. So you begin to see the magnitude of the problem. And then, of course, you know, Ukrainians have a very long tradition of engaging in guerrilla actions. And what's likely to happen as soon as the regular military is, say, defeated or somehow neutralized, is that thousands of guerrillas, thousands of individuals will engage in terrorism, to put it quite openly, uh, assassinations, bombings, and things of that sort. Um, you know, I, I'm reluctant to say that the result could be a, an Iraq situation, um, but in principle, that would be possible. That, of course, has turned out disastrously for the Iraqis, but it's also turned into a disaster for the United States. 
And the Russians would certainly face a very similar kind of situation very soon. Um, you know, we, we need to keep in mind that during World War II, a significant portion of the Soviet partisan movement consisted of Ukrainians, as did a Ukrainian nationalist movement, which was also involved in fighting the Germans and the Soviets. So Ukrainians have this tradition, as I said. They also have a historical memory of this. They tend to venerate their heroes from the past, people who were involved in the partisan movements. Um, so I have no doubt whatsoever that this is, a, this is going to happen if and when there is, in fact, a large-scale assault. And again, I'm speaking with Alexander Motel, who's a professor of political science at Rutgers University, who previously serves as an associate director of the Harriman Institute at Columbia University. He's a specialist on Ukraine, Russia, and the USSR, and on nationalism, revolutions, empires, and theory. And his latest book is The Turn to the Right, The Ideological Origins and Development of Ukrainian Nationalism, 1919 to 1929. Well, I've seen footage of preparations with civilians getting training one piece of footage I saw last night involved a ultranationalist movement training civilians. So the ultranationalists, uh, I don't believe they have any representatives in the RADA, in the parliament, but they do seem to have militias. And, of course, the Russians, in terms of their propaganda, seize on the idea that you've got these neo-Nazi right-wing groups. What's the real picture there? Oh, they're tiny. You're talking about a couple of thousand guys at the most, maybe a few hundred. I mean, they're not represented in the uh, in the parliament. Uh, they have no larger following. Um, so, you know, all, all this talk that the Russians make and have been making since 2014, that somehow or other the government in Kiev consists of ultra-nationalist fascists. I mean, they actually accuse them of being fascists, which is the ultimate irony given that that's exactly what Putin has constructed in Russia. Uh, but they have no influence. Uh, now, were there to be a war, they're obviously going to be in the forefront of the guerrilla movement. I have no doubt about that. And given the fact that many of them are indeed true believers in whatever it is that they believe, they're likely to be, they may in fact have a significant impact on the kind of guerrilla warfare that is waged. But politically, politically, culturally, socially, uh, they're a, an extremely tiny minority. Uh, it would be sort of like saying that the Proud Boys in the U.S. represent the United States. Well, they don't. Um, and in fact, the Proud Boys probably have a significant number of supporters, but these guys don't. So, I, I, you know, it's just Russian propaganda. They've also, in the last few days, in the last week or so, Putin and his minions have started saying that uh, Ukraine, the President Zelensky, is a terrorist, and he's embarking on genocide. Uh, there was recently a report published in one of those uh, enclaves that the, they claim to have captured a Ukrainian agent who has written plans detailing what the Ukrainians are supposed to do in the next few days. And the idea is that they would start with a massive artillery assault followed by tanks, and the ultimate goal would be to ethnically cleanse the Donbass of the Russians, which is totally preposterous, completely crazy. I mean, there's no chance, there's absolutely no chance that the Ukrainians would ever do that. For one thing, they consider these people to be their own citizens of Ukraine. Uh, for another, 
it would be suicidal. I mean, the very notion that the Ukrainians would attack the Donbass enclaves uh, is preposterous because, of course, it would lead to immediate Russian retaliation. And the last thing the Ukrainians need or want is a major war with Russia. It would be like Canada attacking the United States. It, you know, that might be something you could do in a John Candy film, but it's otherwise preposterous. Uh, however, unfortunately, the constituency that listens to Russian propaganda in those enclaves and perhaps people in Russia itself, uh, you know, they, they, they want to believe all sorts of things. And this will simply reinforce their stereotypes of Ukrainians as simply being uncontrollable savages who have nothing in mind other than to kill people, which is totally crazy. Well, we're going to be dealing with that uh, Russian propaganda in the next segment, uh, Alexander. But just in closing here, President Zelensky went to the Munich uh, Security Conference. There were some people thinking that that was a, a bit rash because the Russians have turned on their uh, S-400 ground-air missiles in Belarus. But nevertheless, he went there and, and he made a pitch for sanctions starting right now. He said, what's the point of sanctioning Russia after it's already attacked us and, and shut down our economy. What did you think of that appeal? I don't know that, you know, there's been some talk over here in the Congress of starting sanctions, but I guess Biden is not going to pull the trigger on sanctions until something happens, until Russian tanks cross the borders. Well, you know, there is, there's a logic to both positions, because the people who are opposed to sanctions immediately are saying, well, this is a deterrent, and if we, tell them, if, we, we, if we use the deterrent now, we won't be able to deter the Russians later. There's something to that, and Zelensky also has a very strong point. As he said, you know, if you're going to impose sanctions after they invade, that doesn't really help my country. Uh, I mean, the solution to this might be to, you know, something to cut it down the middle, namely... One could say, for instance, that we're going to impose sanctions A and B, and if Russia misbehaves, we'll impose sanctions C, D, and E. Alternatively, if Russia behaves, we might then be able to withdraw sanctions A and B, progressively in line with their behavior. Uh, so I think Zelensky has a point. I mean, more generally, you know, the speech he gave, by the way, was really quite good. Um, it was a forceful speech. It was a very honest speech. Uh, but it was also a speech in which you could sense that he, like many Ukrainians, are very much disappointed with the West's response. You know, sanctions are great. Uh, weapons supplies are terrific. Um, but many Ukrainians were hoping that the West would be a, a bit more forceful in its response to Russia. Um, and, you know, other than the United States, the U.K., and Poland, most of the other countries have, they've gotten on the NATO bandwagon, but it's clear that they're uncomfortable and they prefer not to be on it. Um, and that's, that might be, that would be sad if, if, the, if the West were to disappoint Ukraine again and again. Again, historically, this has happened so many times that it's become a cliche in, in Ukrainian culture. But the West has never well, to put it strongly, has tended to betray Ukrainian interests when it comes to its dealings with Russia. Uh, to put it less strongly, might be, one might say, well, they just prefer to follow their own interests as opposed to caring about Ukraine. So, so just in the last couple of minutes, then, Alexander, you mentioned uh, the guerrilla movement as a sort of post-invasion scenario. But what about the pre-invasion 
infiltration of Russians. Zelensky sanctioned a bunch of pro-Russian politicians in in the Rada. I don't know whether they're under a house arrest or anything, but they're my understanding is that the Russians have infiltrated Ukraine and that they could cause all kinds of problems with sabotage, etc. And oh, yes. presu- presumably they've also already planning on installing a puppet regime as well. So what do you know about that? Well, uh, again, it's, kind of, it's sort of an open secret that Ukraine has been infiltrated by Russian agents. I mean, frankly, since 30 years ago. Um, arguably, at this point in time, things are better than they were 10, 20, 30 years ago. But the point is, the agents are certainly there. I have no doubt whatsoever that members of the the Russian Secret Service are there in various roles as diversionaries, provocateurs, assassins, and so on. Um, They obviously have support amongst... uh, There's this party called the Opposition Platform, which consists of former... Uh, supporters of Yanukovych, the president who fled in 2014. And they're obviously, they have a pro-Russian, not just a bent, they are pro-Russian, explicitly pro-Russian. And possibly 20% of the population has a pro-Russian bent as well. So it would be easy enough to form a fifth column, get support, create some kind of diversionary tactics and things of that sort. Um, As a matter of fact, I mean, consider consider the following. In the last few days, the enclave, the leaders of the enclave have accused Ukraine of setting off two artillery shells in Russia proper, as well as trying to blow up a number of installations in the republics. Again, that's ludicrous, uh, but there is footage of something blowing up, and, what's, uh, and the Ukrainian version, or the Ukrainian interpretation of that, which I think is correct, is that it's the FSB, it's the Russian Secret Service, doing what Putin did 20 years ago when he came to power. Remember, back in Moscow, uh, he's, he blew up two buildings in order to consolidate his power. Uh, so none of this is unusual. So if they're willing to do those kinds of things within the enclaves, which are supposedly their territory, you can well imagine what they're well, well, uh, willing and able to do within Ukraine proper. And as you probably know, just recently there was... A list was leaked on which a variety of journalists, activists, and politicians uh, were included who were slated by the Russians for either arrest or assassination. Uh, Well, that's likely to go forward regardless of whether there is or is not a major invasion, because clearly they know that they, they will need to get rid of the leadership in order to have some kind of control over the population in general. Um, in terms of this shadow government that they may or may not impose, I mean, that could only work if they actually seize the entire country. Um, because if they just, you know, intervene in the Donbass, um, they, they would obviously have very little impact or influence on goings on within Kiev itself. Uh, but of course, as I said before, uh, occupying the entire country would be an enormous problem and an enormous headache for the Russians. So, the least of their problems would be to find someone to assume the head of some kind of puppet government. Chances are this person would be assassinated within a few days anyway, but by the Ukrainian side. Uh, It could turn into a real bloody mess, as you can see. Well, Alexander Motel, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian.
And again, I've been speaking with Alexander Modell, who's a professor of political science at Rutgers University. He previously served as associate director of the Harriman Institute at Columbia University, and he's a specialist on Ukraine, Russia, and the USSR, and on nationalism, revolutions, empire, and theory. And he's the author of a number of books, the latest of which is The Turn to the Right, The Ideological Origins and Development of Ukrainian Nationalism, 1919-1929. to we're going to take a brief station break and back examining the role of propaganda in preparing the Russian people for a war many do not want with their neighbours who have close historical, linguistic and religious ties with Russia with many mixed families on both sides. <laughs> Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Michael Gorham, who is a professor of Russian studies at the University of Florida and the author of two award-winning books on language, culture, and politics, after Newspeak, Language, Culture, and Politics in Russia, from Gorbachev to Putin, and Speaking in Soviet Tongues, Language, Culture, and the Politics of Voice in Revolutionary Russia. In addition to two co-edited volumes, Digital Russia, the Language, Culture, and Politics of New Media, Communications, and the Culture and Politics of Verbal Prohibition in Putin's Russia, he has recently published articles devoted to the political and rhetorical impact of trolls, hackers, blogging, bureaucrats, tweeting presidents, dictators on Instagram, Alexei Navalny on YouTube, and the Putin administration's recent efforts to enlist all legislative, technological, and rhetorical means possible to establish a sovereign Internet independent of the World Wide Web. Welcome to Background Briefing, Michael Gurum. Good to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us. And you follow Russian media, and if you were in Russia watching state media, which is controlled by Putin, you would believe that Ukraine is run by Nazis, in spite of the fact that the president is uh, Jewish, and that they're waging a genocidal campaign in the Donbass. And there are reports of uncovering mass graves full of corpses of women and children with their hands bound, and they're bludgeoned to death. And this is absolutely hysterical stuff that depicts the government of Ukraine as, as being so cruel that... In effect, Putin has no choice but to invade. This seems to be a psychological preparation for war. How do you see it? Well, it's interesting. Um, you should uh, use the, the the word hysterical because, um, ironically, that's exactly the word that we're hearing uh, used toward the uh, behavior of the United States and the West toward the so-called planned invasion by Putin of Ukraine. Uh, and I think that, but as you're saying, the the tone has definitely changed over the past couple of weeks. If, uh, you know, two or three weeks ago, this entire issue was barely on the radar screen of the evening news. And if then it was basically to, to talk about the, the, the hysteria on the part of the West and the United States in particular. Uh, now we are starting to see a lot more attention and a lot more kind of laying of the laying the groundwork of um, uh, for for impending war. And I haven't seen I haven't seen much about the mass graves, but uh, 
but a quick survey of the news over the past few days uh, really does point to a, a series of um, of motivations, if you will, to sort of a, justify the the entry of, of Russian troops. There's the the bombing of the kindergarten in uh, in Donetsk. One of the news shows had a supposedly live footage of a of a special ops uh, member of the Ukrainian uh, army on a on a failed attempted raid of a chemical factory. There was a, a car bomb outside of uh, one of the main administration buildings in downtown Donetsk, I believe, just on Friday. They've subsequently uh, captured the perpetrator. A saboteur for the Ukrainian intelligence services, as the as the news tells us, and the correspondent of this news channel just happened to be given the opportunity to interview this young man who proceeded to uh, spend about 15 minutes uncovering all the all the dastardly plans. So there's a there's a lot of this going on. In the meantime, the the leader of the the Donbas has uh, has ordered evacuation of uh, of women, younger children, and uh, retirees. He's called for mobilization of uh, all healthy-bodied males to, to pick up arms in defense of the, of, of the, the homeland. Uh, so it certainly does, uh, does seem like the, the, um, they're ratcheting it up. And you know, meanwhile, the, the talk show hosts, who are a lot more flashy with their language and a lot looser, really are talking about um, uh, the denazification of Ukraine. That's the word that uh, Vladimir Solovyov, uh, Putin's favorite interviewer, used uh, just just tonight on a, on his his evening show when they were talking about whether it should be called occupation. He he basically protested and said, "No, we're talking about denazification here." So, with about two hundred thousand troops poised in the north, the east, and the south uh, surrounding Ukraine. How could the Russian people believe that the Ukrainians would want to provoke a war when they're so outmatched? Well, the, uh, the Russian people, uh, frankly, aren't paying a whole lot of attention to the to the news and particularly to international news un, until it, it's uh, front and center on their screens and this really hasn't been a, a big issue and the and the mobilization of Russian troops on the border is, has barely gotten uh, mentioned at all uh, in the news over the past months or so that it's been happening. I mean. Um, when uh, when you look at the uh, the news that has been broadcast over the past few days, Vladimir Putin is featured in one story, and that one story is him and uh, uh, Lukashenko, the leader of uh, of uh, Belarus, uh, in the midst of uh, or overseeing nuclear uh, nuclear readiness uh, drills, kind of testing testing the weapons. So uh, they're kind of flexing their muscles there. And uh, any um, military action on the borders of Ukraine, or I think if they are framed at all, they're framed in the ter- in terms of, uh, you know, standard re- military readiness training, which are all scheduled to end uh, in a couple of days, by the way. Right. 
And again, I'm speaking with Michael Goham, a professor of Russian studies at the University of Florida and the author of two award-winning books on language and culture and politics in Russia. He also has published articles devoted to the political and rhetorical impact of trolls, hackers, blogging bureaucrats, tweeting presidents, dictators on Instagram, Alexei Navalny on YouTube, and the Putin administration's recent efforts to enlist all legislative, technological, and rhetorical means possible to establish a sovereign internet independent of the World Wide Web. So, you know, RT, which is broadcast around the world and of course mm-hmm. here in the United States, the head of RT, Margarita Simonian, recently said, it's a war between Ukraine and government and its own people. People are dying there every day. Thousands of civilians die there. Thousands of children lost their limbs there, buried in little coffins. Uh, and then she went on to say, go there once. You'll change your attitude completely, and you'll understand that Russia can't help but stop this war. We have yep. to. Do we have to wait until they organize concentration camps out there, until they start poisoning their people with gas? So little wonder they're evacuating. <laughs> that would be necessary to justify their own propaganda, right? Yeah, yeah. No, it's uh, the the question is how many how many Russians actually by that that reading of the the current U- Ukrainian administration um my fear is that the the control of mainstream media in Russia is so uh, so complete that uh, anyone who uh, doesn't bother to look to alternative news sources that are re- uh, available on the internet uh will um, will kind of generally and and gradually come over to this uh, this perception and uh, well, that's the, the nature of an authoritarian regime. But I think what uh, the Biden administration has done quite effectively is to kind of prepare the world uh, viewing audience for uh, for the, these sorts of narratives and uh, to kind of make it clear up front that this is not at all what is happening. It's essentially a uh, a military invasion of choice on the part of Vladimir Putin. So with President Biden convinced that Putin's about to invade perhaps today, Sunday, or tomorrow, Monday, as early, I mean, he seems to think it's any day now. He also said that they plan to capture Kiev, the capital, and that would be absolutely hideous. There would necessarily be lots of civilian casualties because they would obviously fire missiles and and bombs at main buildings, etc., government buildings. What happens then? I mean, the Russian people might necessarily know this, but do you think the Russian people could end up watching a kind of shock and awe campaign on their television as the American people did when George W. Bush invaded Iraq? And that was real popular. Everybody, all the cable news were all excited, and there was all this patriotic fervor, and of course... It only changed later when the quick victory was followed by a slow defeat. Right. Uh, I, um, I'm somewhat skeptical. I don't. Uh, I, I think if there are, uh, it is messier than the, the annexation of Crimea, and it most certainly will be. Uh, Crimea was basically populated by um, native Russian speakers who were quite friendly to to the Russian Federation. That's not the case with the. Uh, inhabitants of, uh, of Kiev, I think uh, it, it'll, it's a lot more problematic. And uh, there are lots of lots of family members and relatives living in Ukraine uh, who 
who, uh, and friends. So the the analogy of uh, United States to Iraq is a little bit different because the the two nations are are a lot are a lot closer. And it's it's one thing to uh, demonize the the leader of of Ukraine, which you know is easy enough to do, but to actually actually have footage of uh, you know innocent civilians. Uh, perishing as a result, you can you can only spin that as a fault of Zelensky for so long until it uh, it, it starts falling on deaf ears. So I think um, you know I'm not, I'm not I'm not sure that will happen. I certainly hope it doesn't happen. Uh, but if it does, I I think it would it would be um, uh, much much more problematic as far as the reception uh, in Russia. But Putin lately has been using the word genocide a lot, and so have senior Russian officials and the state media have been using the word genocide, accusing Ukraine of wanting to exterminate the civilian population in the east. And they have this concept, uh, Putin's whole sort of foreign policy vision is based upon Ruskimir, the idea that wherever Russian, ethnic Russians live, that's Russia. So this is a classic case of Ruskimir, is it not? Uh, it is, but what Vladimir Putin doesn't realize is that largely thanks to his animosity toward Ukraine over the past uh, six or seven years, he's pretty much alienated much of the, the Russian world that he had hoped to reunify. I mean, back in 2011, 2012, Ukrainians had, most Ukrainians had very little interest or thought about uh, joining NATO. And now, of course, it's, uh, you know, more than half of the population is is interested in it. So in his effort to reunite Russian or bring, reestablish the traditional Russian lands and bring back together the, the Russian world, he's managed to um, to alienate those, those, those very members of that world that he had, had hoped to bring back into the fold uh, not to mention he's uh, managed to unify nato in a way that it hasn't been nato members in a way that they, they haven't been unified in, in a, for a long time now well that was evident at the munich security conference on saturday right. and also the chinese delegation there near the foreign minister appeared by video the chinese have made it clear that they don't support the idea of a military invasion. So Putin's out there mm-hmm. on his own, but my understanding is that he's surrounded by people who think it's necessary, not just a good idea, but it's necessary. So what's your sense? I guess we're all guessing here. but um, Well, that's, that's the problem, and that's the frightening thing, that his, uh, his perception of the world is, uh, is very much uh, uh, unknown, to people outside of his uh, inner circle, and there are very fewer and fewer people in that inner circle. And chances are, they may themselves may not know completely. But um, uh, we, we're not even entirely sure whether he is of, of right mind. Uh, so it's it's a very very concerning uh, situation. As far as China goes, I think that's a. I mean, uh, China's always been against a military invasion and. Uh, but they also, uh, I think, are, are treading a fine line here because of uh, the obvious uh, uh, marriage of convenience that has uh, 
has sparked up in in recent years between Xi and um, and and Putin. That said, China China themselves have invested quite a bit in the Ukrainian uh, economy. That's one of the biggest breadbaskets of the of the Belt and Road Initiative. And if Russia goes in and messes that up, that's not that's not not going to be well received. So this is obviously a really hideous situation to be facing here, the possibility of a major war in Europe and tremendous civilian casualties. And if all of the military analysts are correct in the kind of various prongs of attack coming from the north, the east and the south, there's no way in the world that this will be, it's certainly not going to be a cakewalk like Iraq was for the coalition. It would seem to me that even a blitzkrieg coming down from Belarus into Kiev and capturing the city. I don't know how long before guerrilla war would break out, but I just can't see that this is going to be a very sanitized kind of coup where he can take the country quickly, get rid of the government, put Zelensky up against a wall and shoot him, and then install a pro-Russian government, and then everything's going to be hunky-dory. I mean, it's hard to understand what Putin is thinking. Some people that I talk to in Russia say that he's a new czar. You were saying you don't even know about his mental capacity and whether he's really mentally sound. We know we've just had a president for four years who's completely mentally unsound. And even the Russians say that Trump was mentally unstable. But given the amount of wealth and power and longevity of his reign in the Kremlin, maybe he has become like a a czar, out of touch. Uh, yeah, I think that's in part, and that's partly inevitable. But it's it's one thing to be in in your right mind and uh, just out of touch with the uh, with the population and uh, um, and and insane or or out of your mind. And I, you know, when you see him uh, talking at uh, press conferences and um, performing his duties, he's he's very articulate still and. Um, uh, has a lot of facts at his fingertips, so there's not a whole lot of reason to believe that he is uh, completely insane. But uh, the, the concern is that his his vision of uh, reality in the in the world outside is is, is quite skewed uh, by the sort of information he is uh, selectively selectively fed. Well, Michael Graham, I thank you very much for joining us here today. My pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Michael Graham, a professor of Russian studies at the University of Florida and the author of two award-winning books on language and culture and politics after Newspeak, Language, Culture and Politics in Russia from Gorbachev to Putin and Speaking in Soviet Tongues, Language, Culture and Politics of Voice in Revolutionary Russia in addition to two co-edited volumes, Digital Russia, The Language, Culture and Politics of New Media Communications and The Culture and Politics of Verbal Prohibition in Putin's Russia. He has recently published articles devoted to the political and rhetorical impact of trolls, hackers, blogging bureaucrats, tweeting presidents, dictators on Instagram, Alexei Navalny on YouTube, and the Putin administration's recent efforts to enlist all legislative, technological, and rhetorical means possible to establish a sovereign internet independent of the World Wide Web. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into how millions of Afghans are facing starvation as their economy collapses and law firms here in the United States are jostling to collect money from the 3.5 billion of the Afghan people's frozen assets.
which President Biden released to the families of the victims of 9-11. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Lee Fong, who's an investigative journalist with The Intercept, who was the first to uncover and detail the role of the billionaire Koch brothers in financing the Tea Party movement. He's the author of The Machine, A Field Guide to the Resurgent Right. And his latest article at The Intercept is Lawyers and Lobbyists Fight for Their Slice of the $3.5 billion in Afghan money seized by the Biden administration. Welcome to Background Briefing, Lee Fong. Hey, Ian, thank you so much for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And there's been a considerable amount of outrage expressed, certainly by a minority, but nevertheless, people are concerned that the $7 billion in funds that belong to the Afghan people in the Federal Reserve Bank in New York, which now the Biden administration has decided to give half of that $3.5 billion to the relatives of the victims of 9-11 and the other half into some kind of trust fund that will get humanitarian aid to Afghanistan, somehow working around the Taliban, which nobody thinks is a particularly useful process. But all this in the context of the fact that up to 20 million Afghans are facing starvation. So tell us about what you've found out in terms of Who's likely to get a big chunk of this $3.5 billion? And that is, of course, the lawyers for the 9-11 families. Yeah, just to set this up uh, for your listeners and to explain how this works, you know, um, after the attacks on September 11th, um, the, the families of the victims joined uh, a number of different lawsuits. I believe over a dozen exist um, against uh, foreign entities, foreign sovereign nations, also uh, dozens more against uh, private entities and, and insurance companies. And um, there's been kind of a 20-year uh, fight to recover some of this money. Um, there are lawsuits filed against uh, Iran, against Sudan, Saudi Arabia, Saddam Hussein, Iraq, Afghanistan. And um, various courts have approved uh, uh, judgments against these foreign entities. But there's been, there's been, of course, sovereign immunity issues um, and an inability to collect. A court last year approved an effort by one kind of group of plaintiffs uh, filing suit against uh, the Taliban and the, the government of Afghanistan for causing 9-11. And uh, there was kind of what's called a, a writ of execution to go and collect uh, the $7 billion held um, on behalf of the Afghan people uh, at the Federal Reserve in New York. Now, the, the the U.S. government stepped in and said, uh, no, um, there, there are legal, legal issues that have to be cleared first. But the decision last Friday um, settled this. Um, what happened was that uh, President Biden, as you just mentioned, um, announced that half of the $7 billion held on behalf of the Afghan people will be distributed to this group of, of, of plaintiffs uh, and, and their clients. We don't know the exact fee structure. I've, I've reached out. But what we do know is that 
Um, there's a lot of revolving door action, um, uh, efforts to bring in uh, Biden-connected officials who will reap a financial windfall from this money. There's a lot of lobbying going on. And we uncovered documents showing that even some of the lobbyists involved in this, they've been promised a cut of the money, too. So you know how these lawsuits work is that rather than the clients uh, paying for the legal services, uh, they pay th- these lawsuits are on contingency, meaning uh, the lawyers are, are paid a percentage of the judgments that are distributed. So for this three point five billion dollars, even with a conservative fee structure, uh, that means this is a five hundred fifty million dollar at least payday uh, to the lawyers and lobbyists involved in this case. And of course, normally uh, the contingencies in these kind of cases, lawyers get what thirty percent, and you have industries in this country of these ambulance chasing law companies that advertise on television. If you have an accident, you know, go to them and they'll get you money. So, yeah, what's what's unusual here is that some of the government, this is a very political case, you know, rather than this just being like, oh, a a doctor injured me, so, you know, I'm going to sue that doctor or what have you. um, There are a lot of politics and policy decisions around this. So you have government officials who are shaping the laws that that govern whether we can seize these funds, going to work uh, on these cases and then responding reaping a financial windfall. So the, the, the kind of the most glaring example of this that we highlighted and were the first to report this week is that Lee Woloski, a uh, partner at the big law firm Jenner and Block, uh, he was uh, a special government employee advising the National Security Council, working in the Biden White House on Afghan issues since, since September. He left in January. Within three days or four days of him leaving the White House, he joined the main plaintiff lawsuit uh, against the Taliban and he's now leading, if you look on the pleadings on the motions to go collect this money from the Federal Reserve, it's this Biden official uh, who stands poised to, to reap the financial windfall. So, you know, th- there's there's the fact of the, the fees. We don't know the exact number. Is it 15 percent? Is it 30 percent? If it's 30 percent, that means these lawyers will be paid over a billion dollars. Uh, there's the fact that there are so many other funds that are, you know, appropriated by Congress that are financed with other kind of few foreign assets that have already paid out billions of dollars to these victims. And of course, the human toll, you know, uh, Afghanistan is in complete collapse. Uh, people aren't being paid. Uh, you can't collect money from the banks. As you mentioned, 20 million are facing starvation. There are already reports of teachers and other people in civil society literally dying in the streets of starvation. And there's a report I just read of, some, of a teacher dying in Kandahar. More people are slated to die from this starvation crisis created by the Biden sanctions and the seizure of these funds than from 20 years of war and occupation. Well, the fact that this Lee Wolofsky was in the Biden administration serving as a special counsel to the National Security Council on Afghanistan as recently as last month, I might add. I mean, that's extraordinary. And now he's joined this Havlish case. So Havlish is the umbrella they got the writ against the Federal Reserve in New York. Tell me what Havlish entails and and how do all of these other law firms like Kreidler and Kreidler and Motley Rice and others play into that? Well, last year, last August, the Taliban took control officially of Afghanistan. Um, a court in New York uh, granted an effort uh, by this kind of one kind of cross-section of plaintiffs uh, which has been kind of uh, just named Pavlish for one of the the last names of of, of the of the clients on the case. 
successfully got a, a, you know an order to go seize this money, and that that order was. Uh, suspended just for a moment uh, by the U.S. government that said that, look, there are national security concerns happening here. We can't just allow the U.S. Marshals to go storm into the Federal Reserve and seize these these funds from the Afghan people. You know, it's not just uh, currency. That's also gold and bonds being held uh, that 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 are that belong to the Afghan people. But that was all settled last Friday when Biden made this executive order deciding that, hey, $3.5 billion, half of this money held in New York, will go to these lawsuits. Now, that seems like it would go directly to the Havlisch case since they were the first to receive that order last year from a judge. But now we're seeing this week, as, as recently as Tuesday, it's kind of a feeding frenzy. All the different plaintiffs' attorneys, the, the, law, the lawyers that represent um, different cases, that represent the case against Sudan, that represent the case against Saudi Arabia, uh, m- many of these other uh, lawyers who are hoping to get a percentage of this money, a cut of this money, um, are, are filing motions within that, that, that same docket, within that same courthouse, uh, so that they can get some of that $3.5 billion. And again, I'm speaking with Lee Fong, who is an investigative journalist with The Intercept, who was the first to uncover and detail the role of the billionaire Koch brothers in financing the Tea Party movement. He's the author of The Machine, A Field Guide to the Resurgent Right. And his latest article at The Intercept is Lawyers and Lobbyists Fight for Their Slice of the $3.5 billion in Afghan Money Seized by the Biden administration. And given that this money belongs to the people of Afghanistan, and we that was our longest war, obviously, we invested a huge amount of money in that. And you pointed out, we'll kill, starvation will kill more Afghans than the war ever did. And I don't know exactly what the second half of this $7 billion, which is the $3.5 billion that's supposed to go into a trust fund. Have you any idea how that could work? Because... My understanding is that if you try and get aid to that country without dealing with its government, you're going to be dealing with black marketeers and smugglers, and they'll be taking a cut of whatever it is that's supposed to get to the people. So it doesn't seem like a very viable plan. No, and we've seen since the sanctions were imposed last year, uh, well, they they were interpreted, I should say. I mean, this sanctions against the Taliban have existed since 2001 under the Bush administration. What's changed is that now that the Taliban is in control of Afghanistan, uh, every multinational bank, aid organization, business, individual that wants to interact with anything in Afghanistan now has to fear that they will run afoul of those sanctions. So it's just completely shut down their economy. If you're a large bank or a financial organization, why why make the risk for Afghanistan? I mean, it's a small economy in the, in the global scheme of things. Why, why you know, engage in any transaction? And no, I think for public relations reasons, reputation reasons, it sounds good for the Biden administration to say, look, we're, we've made these exceptions for humanitarian purposes. Oh, we're going to take this money, but we're, we're giving half of it to humanitarian concerns. That has never been defined. And, and the simple fact is that their GDP is, is collapsing so quickly uh, because of these sanctions, because of that seizure of, of, of this money, which has crippled and ruined their, their financial system. Regular Afghans can't collect their own deposits at the bank. Banks are closed. They can't just engage in everyday business. You know, even if somehow miraculously the $3.5 billion went directly into the Afghan economy in the sense of like humanitarian aid of food and blankets or, you know, medical supplies, it might be too late because they've already killed the heart of, of what makes society exist, which is the economy. So, you know, the, this kind of hand-waving about humanitarian concerns, you know, I, I, I find ridiculous. They haven't defined how this money 
will be defined. I think they're just politically scared uh, with the midterms coming up of doing what needs to be done, which is simply recognizing that the Taliban is the government of, of Afghanistan. These sanctions are ridiculous and they're killing people. And we should just start normal diplomatic relations with this country and allow their economy to exist. Well, Afghanistan was, of course, in the news very much at the time of the collapse and the withdrawal of the U.S. and NATO forces. And the Republicans were piling on, the press were piling on against Biden. But since then, you virtually don't hear anything. It's like a bad memory. So it just seems incredibly callous that we have lost interest in this country and we don't seem to care about the fate of the people. And, you know, we've got this sort of fig leaf of uh, $3.5 billion, and we don't quite know whether any of that humanitarian aid or what portion of it will ever reach the people while they face starvation and they, they can't go to the banks and use the ATMs, etc., because all their money was in New York. So on top of all that, you've got the contrast to the fact that while most Americans don't care about Afghanistan and are probably happy that we're out of there, they do care about the victims of 9-11. So I guess in that sense, emotionally, or the lawyers are onto a good thing if indeed they are to be characterized as ambulance chasers. No, sure. I mean, just politically and public perception-wise, this makes sense. You don't care about millions of lives that are being harmed in Afghanistan, but you do care about your politi political perception and reputation. Sure, I mean... There's nothing more uh, kind of sympathetic in American politics as 9-11 victims. And you know, for these attorneys that are now fighting over this, the, one of the attorneys from Kreinler and Kreinler, one of the plaintiff's law firms that were not originally in the Havilish uh, plaintiff's case, but are now fighting in court to get a chunk of this money. I mean, he was uh, one of the partners there was just on BBC News saying, look, we deserve this money. Why? Because the Afghan people didn't fight hard enough against the Taliban. If they really cared about their country and, and, and deserved a piece of this money, uh, they would have stopped the Taliban. But they let them take over, so we should take their money. I mean, it, it's this kind of rhetoric that you couldn't imagine on any uh, – it, it's just hard to imagine. But I think they, they understand that for a lot of Americans, they're on the side of justice because they represent the 9-11 victims. And you're speaking of Andrew Maloney, who's actually a partner with the Kreidler and Kreidler. Yeah, that's who, right. Who said that – the rally is the Afghan people didn't stand up to the Taliban. They bear some responsibility for the conditions they're in, blaming the victim, uh, essentially. Mm -hmm. and, no, that's uh, right. And, you know, these, these law firms are taking hardball tactics. The other thing that we kind of put in this piece from a completely separate lawsuit, uh, we found that, you know, there's so many lobbyists that have been hired. There have been lobbyists hired last December, some of whom were working for the Biden campaign, or at least on a volunteer basis. They have some access to the Democrats, they're big Democratic donors. But then other donors, um, you know, for the last decade have been working on spec. They're also promised a percentage of the money. You know, some of these lobbyists at law firm called Nelson Mullins and another kind of very famous D.C. lobbyist named Jack Quinn, who used to be a CNN contributor, still appears on TV sometimes. You know, he had a contract with Kreinler and Kreinler. Uh, one of these 9-11 victims law firms, um, the one you just mentioned, uh, to receive a, a, a percent of the awards that were, you know, come from one of these sovereign immunity cases where they, they, they take uh, foreign assets to, to pay out the victims. So there is some precedent for this, is there not? Wasn't there an earlier settlement? And I well, think there's the been... Iranian money was also frozen, wasn't it, as well? 
Right. No, there have been seized Iranian assets, and that that money has been auctioned off, or those assets have been auctioned off or liquidated, and then put into a special victims fund and distributed to the victims. There's been money appropriated by Congress. Um, you know, many of the 9/11 victims have been con- have been compensated to the, to the tune of many millions of dollars. Um, that's not to say that every victim has become whole. You know, there's both the pain and suffering and the kind of punitive damages that have been awarded by, by courts. But the question is, I think in this Afghanistan case, uh, what are the what's the harm caused? I mean, the average Afghan person did not even know that 9/11 happened uh, on September 11th. You know. The regular Afghan people aren't responsible for the small group that sponsored and hosted bin Laden. Um, there's been no evidence that any of the Taliban officials were even involved in the planning of September 11. Uh, hundreds of thousands of Afghans have taken part in coalition forces to fight terror groups, including al-Qaeda and the Taliban. But for whatever reason, I guess for collective punishment reasons, uh, the average Afghan person is, is being asked to, to be punished here. Well, Lee Fong, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Ian, thank you so much for talking about this issue. And again, I've been speaking with Lee Fong, who's an investigative journalist with The Intercept, who was the first to uncover and detail the role of the billionaire Koch brothers in financing the Tea Party movement. He's the author of The Machine, A Field Guide to the Resurgent Right. And his latest article at The Intercept is Lawyers and Lobbyists Fight for Their Slice of the $3.5 billion in Afghan Money Seized by the Biden Administration. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in the